0: Well, hey, good morning, Harvest, how we doing? Good, hey, thank you guys for making the effort to uh, be at church this morning. I know between holidays coming up and COVID surges, there's a lot going on and uh, that's just encouragement to see so many people here uh, worshiping together. And uh, what we're gonna do today is a little bit different. Um, We only do this about once every other year or maybe once a year, um, but we're gonna have a question and answer uh, service. And so what that means is, is this fall, we have been preaching on what it means to have a Christian worldview. And uh, we knew that when we talk about things like work and money and sex and all of these things, there's going to be a lot of practical questions that come up that maybe we haven't been able to hit on in our messages. So what we have been doing is over the last couple weeks, we've asked you to submit questions that that maybe we could answer or bring more clarity to. So we've got about nine or 10 of those that have been um, submitted. There's probably 60 or 70, and a lot of them were similar. We kind of whittled them down to ones that would kind of cover the most people. Um, but we're just gonna kind of work through and talk about how do we practically when it comes to worldview as followers of Jesus Christ how do we practically live in a way that honors and glorifies God and the way that this works is um, I'm just going to say this off the top the questions come in we work through them together and then my dad decides who takes what so he takes all the easy ones I take all the hard ones and uh, it's really unfair but we're going to do our best and um, we're going to kind of work through some of these questions And, and I really hope that the purpose of today is to be helpful to equip and to maybe bring some clarity on things that have been missed or gaps in our messages because we've been covering so much. So let's get right to it. Um, we'll start you off with a super simple one. Ready for softball? Um, do you think we as believers should attend the same-sex wedding of a family member or friend?
1: So one of the problems of, of co-pastoring with Cal is... Um that's the same joke that I used on him last night, but he got to speak first, so he just stole it. And um, what happens often is I'll come up with a really profound point during prep during the week, and then he'll preach on Saturday night, and then when I use it, it's like, oh, you stole Cal's point. I'm just telling you, this happens to me all the time. So. You know what?
0: The, the, the two times in our 11 years where that's happened, I sincerely apologize. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, I'm avoiding answering the first question that you gave me. Um Okay, so the question of wedding is is kind of what this question is about, but here's the problem. Um, this involves way more than weddings, right? So some of you are having to navigate uh, family gatherings for Thanksgiving, you're uh, dealing with issues with co-workers, you're dealing with um, uh, education systems, and, and how do we engage and how do we interact? And please hear me, the goal of this study has not been for me to lay down, hey, there, here's are my convictions, or here's the church's convictions, and you need to think the same way. The whole goal behind this Christian worldview was think through your convictions, what's at the core of why you believe what you believe, and quite honestly, we can come to some different conclusions. I think there's some issues where we might have different convictions, but... Um, don't just take our convictions, and so with that being said, let me give you my convictions specifically on this um, as it relates to attending a wedding. We've kind of went back and forth on this as a family, right? We've debated on this, and because these are real issues for us, and um, what I would say is this. I would not go to a wedding uh, that was for a ceremony for a same-sex couple, and here's why. Uh, I've got neighbors um, who are same-sex. That's not an issue to me. I can be neighborly. I work with people. I can be workerly, a good, good, a good co-worker, whatever I mean to say there. Like, I, I can engage and interact in almost any context. What makes the marriage or the wedding difference is the reason that you're gathering. Like, like, if I have a neighbor over who is in a same-sex relationship, we're coming over, we're having fellowship, we're having dinner, I don't have an issue with that. But to go to the wedding... The thing that we're celebrating and going to the wedding is the union. And for me, now you're asking me basically to heartily agree with what's going on. I'm stealing words from the last uh, verse in Romans 1. And and I don't want to be in a position where I'm giving my endorsement to a ceremony. And it feels to me like if you could attend the wedding of a same-sex marriage, what you're actually doing is saying, I'm willing to celebrate this union with you. And that's where it becomes tough.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good answer. I, I think um, this is a really, really difficult issue, and, and so I do think um, we as believers, with people in our lives who have um, are in same sex relationships, I think we do need to pursue them in love and have relationship with them and and, and care for them and, and be engaged in their life. But the the hard part about a wedding is, you know, there, there's two things happening. It's a celebration of the of the relationship, and it's a covenant before God, right? Like when I got married, I stood before the lord and we made promises to each other and um that's where a a biblical worldview makes it the attending of a wedding really really difficult and it's just a, and i think this is a thing that christians can disagree on and and again i think we flip-flopped back and forth on this through our years of ministry it's just difficult
1: yeah and i I would even go this far maybe this is just because i'm getting old i don't even want to go to a marriage of unbelievers like like, I just don't wanna to go to, I wanna to go to marriages that I know are honoring the Lord. I struggle to go to a, a wedding ceremony between one person who's saved and one person that's not saved because I realize that's gonna be problematic. That's against God's instruction. So when you pick these things where you're put in a position that by your attendance, you're giving approval to what's going on. And by the way, it could be different for me. Even when I go to these weddings as a pastor, I represent something different. Uh, it involves your kids sometimes as you go to, Thanksgiving and some of these things that I don't have to worry about his directly anymore. So I think we can come to different conclusions. I'm just telling you where I'm at. Yeah, so I think the big takeaway is, is if you're
0: out there and you're getting married, don't ask Pastor Dave to do your wedding. He doesn't even <laughs> like him <so> at all, <laughs> um, no matter what. So um, that's, let's, let's that's go on pretty, to the next that's one. That's pretty close to true. I, I, think, I think that's okay, where we landed. So
1: here's, here's the second question for that. Uh, you get this one. Um, do you agree with the statement that it's okay to be Christian and be gay, just choose to live a s- celibate lifestyle?
0: Uh, yeah, that's a, um, a really good question. And um, as I uh, have wrestled with how to answer this question, I think there's a million different ways you could, could answer it. And so what I want to do is, is I want to be as helpful and as pastoral as I can be. So here's how I'm going to approach this question. I, I want to answer it as if um, I was answering, like I, I want to answer it by saying, what would I do if one of my sons came to me and said, Dad, um, I just want you to know I have same-sex attraction and I think I might be gay. What, what would I do in that context? And I think if one of my boys came to me and said, Dad, this is where I'm at. Um, th- this, is, this is how I feel. This is what's going on in my life. Um, in that moment, I know that there would be two primary lies that I'm going to have to go to war with and help my son battle. Here's the first. I'm going to have to help my son battle the lie that our culture tells us that our sexual identity is our primary identity. We live in a culture that says that sex is the most important thing in the world. It is your primary identity, and if you can't have a life where you're free to have whatever sexual expression you want, it's not a life worth living, and uh, that's a really dangerous uh, lie, and it's actually insane on so many levels, so what I need to do is is I need to remind my son who he is, that he is um, a child of God, that he's a disciple, that he's a follower of Jesus. That um, the eternal things about who he is and his identity are are, are way more important than his sexual identity. I'm going to have to battle against that lie. The second lie that I'm going to have to go to war against is the lie that to follow Jesus for my son means that he's going to have to be alone. I think a very, very easy lie for Christians who have same-sex attraction is if I'm faithful to what God's word says and if I honor the Lord in my sexuality, I'm going to live a, a lonely life. And that is also a lie. You know, the Bible says that at salvation, all of us, we have received the spirit of God, that God himself dwells inside of us and he is near to us and he comforts us and he's with us. Like, that's an awesome thing. I'm also gonna have to tell my son, you're not alone. You have a family who loves you and cares for you and is going to be there for you and walk this journey with you. And I'm also going to point him to the church and say, hey, you have a community of brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to fill in the gaps of relationship and community in your life. And church, I would say for the people in our church who are honoring the Lord And in their same-sex attraction, we do need to come around them and be a community for them and have relationships with them in a dynamic way um, for their good and benefit. And then here's what I'm gonna tell my son to do. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians 7, 17, and it says this. It says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him to and to which God has called him. And I'm gonna tell my son right now with with these um, affections and attractions you have, God has called you to singleness. And here's the cool thing, Paul says, especially when it comes to ministry, that singleness is actually better than being married because the single person has more attention. They can focus on the Lord. They're not as distracted. They don't carry the same type of anxieties that that married people do. But I'm going to tell my son, God hasn't made a mistake. He hasn't abandoned you, but he has um, given you the privilege to serve him in this specific area and to bring glory to him that can be a huge testimony for Christ. And then I'm also gonna tell my son, listen, the Lord knows the desires of your heart. And if you sincerely desire to be married and to have a lifelong companion and partner, we're gonna pray that the Lord changes these attractions and these affections or that the Lord brings a woman into your life who you are attracted to that would love the Lord and be a fitting spouse for you to do life with. And listen, I don't think that's something that I can force or coerce, but here's what I know. I know the testimony of thousands of people who are followers of Jesus Christ have said that God has moved in these areas and changed affections and has brought a spouse for for them to live a married life that honors the Lord with. Um, And then here's the other thing I would say, listen, all of us are called to submit our sexual desires to the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're gay, if you're straight, if you're single, if you're married, right? Um, temptation for sexual sin does not stop after marriage. We're all called to submit sexual desires to the Lord. And so I'm going to tell my son, God hasn't called you to do something fundamentally different than what he's called everyone else. And we're going to come alongside you and walk through this with you.
1: Yeah, I, I just, I, th- I think it's a dangerous um, path to start to follow if we allow culture to convince us that our attractions and our affections should be the primary driver of our activity. That's not true on so many levels for the Christian, and we're seeing it everywhere. Hey, the most important thing is um, what you feel like doing, and, and, and nobody gets to tell you any differently. Hey, God's Word's the authority in all of these things. And our affections and our attractions, they actually are in submission to the Word of God. It's not the other way around.
0: All right, so we're going to move to money now. And uh, I think this was from a sermon you preached, Dad. It says this. It says, you quoted from Ecclesiastes that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Um, what are some practical steps to develop contentment? And then in parentheses, someone's asking for their wife. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's that's really funny, by the way. Um, he, here, here's what I would say, because because preachers preach, right? So I'm I'm going to take you to a passage, and I just want to walk you through what a verse says, and just kind of comment. I want to just give you God's word in response to that. First um, Timothy six seventeen says this: Has for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud. And the first thing I would like to say is, if all of a sudden uh, your net worth or your bank accounts all of a sudden um, explode. Be very, very careful that it doesn't change the way that you perceive yourself or the way that you live. It's, it's been an interesting year because of some things that happened in the stock market, because of some inheritance. I've met with several people in our family or in our church family here who've come into uh, unexpected wealth very, very quickly. And, and my advice to them in every case is don't change everything you're doing. Like, you don't have to drop out of school. You don't have to quit your job. Like, like continue to do the things that you were doing. Don't become proud because of this. And then it goes on and says, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And a verse that's always on my mind uh, is Psalm 5110. Uh, if riches increase, don't set your heart on them. And and he'll go on and explain that even more. But on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, there's two really big words there, to enjoy. And, and, and in... In there there is certain things in evangelical circles. Please hear me on this. You get to enjoy God's blessing. Uh, my kids will remind me of this sometimes. Uh, hey, Dad, you're becoming like that guy in Ecclesiastes who's God's given health and wealth to, and you fail to enjoy it. And it says that's a terrible thing. And so you're able to enjoy the wealth that God has entrusted to you. That's not wrong. And then he goes on and says this. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up for themselves, uh, a treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may, may take hold of what's truly life. A couple things. Practice generosity. And secondly, set your hopes on the future all this money's going to burn. We're all going to be in eternity in like 14 seconds. You know, it's coming quick in the grand scheme of eternity. And I would practice generosity, and I would try to um, make that a family trait, not just a personal trait. Um, this this week, it was interesting. 20 years ago, Kristen and I started a, a, a bread company in Grand Haven. And it's been a long time since I baked, but I was over there Thursday, and I was doing some baking in the afternoon. And I was engaging with customers at the front counter, which was like my least part of baking, but that's a whole other story. And and this It's like the wedding thing, right? Pretty much, yeah. pretty much. Um, the fact that anybody in this room would ever be like, oh, should we invite David? Should we not? You're, you're off the hook, okay? You, we, that just happened. This, it relates to a wedding. But at the, where was I? Being nice to customers. Oh, nice to customers. That's right. Okay, so a lady, old lady wanders into the bakery um, Thursday afternoon, and um, she's got her little, like, money purse there, and she's like, well, how much are the brownies? Well, how much are the scones? What's in the scones? And she's just asking very direct, specific questions, very concerned about how much she's going to spend. She's like, well, I think I'll buy a brownie because my husband really likes chocolate. And I was like, if your husband likes chocolate, buy two. Take two. So I gave her two, and I'm like, why don't you take some scones, and then here's a loaf of bread, and we're not going to take your money. She's like, well, what do you mean you're not going to take my money? We're like, happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for coming in. And she was like, oh, I am so glad I came in today. And, um, <laughs> and and it reminded me, that was the best part of working at the bakery, was being able to be generous with customers. I had another guy come in. He used to go to the church. He left because he was mad at me. And he came wandering into the bakery. Now he's shocked that I'm there actually baking. And he forgot his wallet. And he's got to pick up an order for his wife. It's like, just take the order. It's fine. Don't, don't worry about it. And... Um, Another lady came up front, and she's like, are you selling that cinnamon bread back there? We had just baked some cinnamon bread. It wasn't going to be for sale. And I looked at the girl at the counter, and I'm like, does she seem nice? And, uh, and I said it loud enough so the customer could hear. And uh, she's like, yeah. I said, well, then just give it to her for free. And she came back to the back to thank me for giving her the bread. And I said, I gave it to you for a reason. She was wearing a face mask, and her face mask said, Mary Free Bed. And I'm like, thank you guys for all that you're doing. I know this has been a difficult season. I know the type of work that you do. So, you know, thankful for the way that you've served our community working there. I think practicing generosity, the last phrase of that verse is, take hold of that which is truly life. That's where the joy of God blessing you with resources is and the ability to be generous.
0: Yeah, I I think a, a principle that I just believe so strongly is generous people are happy people. And so, what Mary and I do is is we have a very direct conversation. We have it about every quarter, maybe four times a year. How are we being generous? And maybe that's with money, maybe that's with our time, maybe that's with what God has given us. I think Mary and I have had eight different people live in our house for extended periods of time while we've been married. We just, um, we find that when we're generous with others, um, it's good for our kids, it's good for us, and um, generous people are happy people. So, I would look to be generous with whatever God's given you, lot or little.
1: All right, next question uh related to work it says the environment at my workplace is pretty raunchy do i tolerate the behavior of my coworkers or do i take a stand signed pastor marty no yeah, i wasn't exactly signed. <laughs> i can really relate to this with the guys i have to work with um
0: yeah i think that that's a that's a real question this is a question that we've dealt with a lot and here's what i would say um I think we have to be careful as believers not to hold unbelievers to have the same expectations or moral grit or desire to honor the Lord like we would with what we talk about or what we say. So I think there's this conflict a lot where I'm working with unbelievers who who have different values than me and how do I, I'm offended by some of the things they say, Uh, it's hard, it's a difficult environment, what do I do? Um, I don't think that's the time to stand on your soapbox and to talk down on everyone. I, I don't think you're winning friends there. Um, I I think a better way to do it is I think you um, model um, what it means to honor the Lord with your conduct. I I think you love them well. I think you work hard. I think you show genuine care and interest for the people that you work with. Um, I would encourage you, um, hopefully there's an ally in your company. You know, find another believer who works um, in your company that you can— help hold you accountable, that you're not participating in the things that are happening that wouldn't please the Lord and that can be an encouragement. But I I think what you do is, is I think by your conduct and your attitude, I think you pray that God gives you an opportunity to have an impact and witness for Christ. I was just talking to a friend of mine who at his workplace There's a lot of dinners and parties, and it's very, very routine that at those parties people get drunk and the language gets out of control, and there's a party culture at the workplace. And my friend, he never gets drunk. He doesn't swear, and amongst the people he works with, especially his boss, this is starting to get noticed. He's worked there for a dozen years. He's been super successful, and the boss has kind of said, hey, I notice you don't do these things, and it's given my... um, Friend, this opportunity to say, Yeah, well, this is the church I go to and this is what I'm involved in. And the boss started asking for certain messages that we gave. So now my friend sends his boss the sermons that we do and he listens to him, And he's not a believer yet, but he's intrigued and engaged. And he's just having a really cool ability to have inroads for the gospel simply by loving the people he worked with, not engaging in the sin, but also not separating himself and isolating himself and looking down on the people he worked with. I think it's a fine line, um, but I, I think we're called to be a light
1: and to be loving and, and um, shine for Christ in those areas. Yeah, I, I think the idea that you create an expectation for the people you work to to live according to a worldview that they don't agree with is very difficult. We don't want to be put in that position with the biblical worldview and to demand it of people who don't hold our worldview. Um, I think it's a, it's a stretch. Uh, You get the next question, too. Here it is. What about if you were baptized in the teen years, made the decision yourself, but didn't fully understand the meaning of it at the time? Should we consider being baptized again?
0: Yeah. So we know that coming out of a, a reformed area, there's a lot of people that have been baptized as infants. So we kind of address that when we do baptism calls. And what we've been asked, too, is also like, well, I got baptized when I was 10, 11, 12, and... Um, I think I was saved, but I for sure don't know as much about the Lord as I do now. I don't know if I did it for the right reasons. There's just confusion about when they got baptized when they were young. And um, here's what I would say. I, I would say, first of all, there's, there's a lot of grace in that. Um, and, and I would say the macro thing that we see in Scripture is God wants us to, for sure, after we've been followers of Jesus Christ, um, to get baptized, So if you were saved and you were young and you got baptized, just because you didn't have everything figured out doesn't null your baptism. Like, I don't have everything figured out right now. None of us do. So this idea that somehow after baptism, we have it all together or we're perfect is a lie that, that we can't live up to. But here's what I would say. If you're like not sure, hey, I'm not sure if I was actually a Christian when I got baptized, I would say next time we do a baptism service, like, make sure. Like, come forward, get baptized. I don't think you are going to be in the penalty box in heaven because you got baptized twice when you were genuinely trying to honor the Lord and do the right thing. I, I would encourage you, if there's any sense of doubt or uncertainty, if you just feel the Spirit tugging you to make that step of obedience, I would encourage you to do it.
1: And, and I would, just as a general rule, I would try to avoid anything that would put you in the penalty box in heaven.
0: <laughs> That's the next sermon series. It's called, okay. what gets you in the penalty box?
1: Okay, so I think I get the next.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll ask you the next one. Um, All right, here's where it's going to get fun. You ready? Um, My work is requiring the vaccine. I don't believe the government should force anyone to put anything into their body. But if I don't take the vaccine, I will lose my job. What should I do? Is the vaccine a battle we should choose to fight?
1: Okay, so this is the the one of the reasons why we went to Daniel um, last week, and I preached from Daniel three. I was trying to go to specific examples of how and when followers choose to uh, rebel against what the re- authority is requiring them to do. And you know, full disclosure, um, um, I've taken the vaccine, um, but I'm not anti um, anti vaxxers. Like, there's, this thing has become so divisive, not just amongst people within churches, but just throughout our community. And, and I've got a concern. Like, I, I'm seeing what's going on in Europe. I'm watching the trends. We're going through another series of lockdowns. We're seeing uh, some European countries. Uh, everybody gets uh, mandated vaccines. I would not be surprised to see that this plays out in ways that we wouldn't like here, that it's invading our personal rights. But what I've tried to do and explain to you is, don't have a point of view. Don't, don't just have an opinion. We need to form convictions if we're going to go through life and make proper choices. And what I've tried to do, and this isn't a hypothetical question, how many people have we met with over yeah, the course I mean, this of the last is two weeks? Almost on a
0: daily basis, we're talking with people who their jobs are rolling out mandates, and they're like, I don't know what to do. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a real thing. It's an
1: everyday thing. And, and so what I'm doing with people as I meet with them one by one, I'm just trying to create a paradigm for them of, of how do you form a conviction and what is at the core of your conviction. So as it relates to the vaccine, what I'm asking people is, is this a personal conviction or is it a religious conviction? And by the way, people are split on that. Some would say, well, I I don't trust the medical data, and I don't think I should be forced to do this. I go, those tend to be more personal and and scientific convictions. They don't tend to be religious at the basis of the way you're explaining why you have a conviction. And I just see throughout the New Testament, and I see it in the Old Testament too, you don't have to um, make a conviction that you're going to die on the hill as it relates to your personal rights and freedoms. None of us like that those things are being restricted. But the reality is, I think those are some things that you can say, I can lay my personal rights down. And if you want New Testament examples of followers of Jesus Christ doing it, I can show you that over and over and over again for the sake of their testimony, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of being able to spread the gospel. They lay down their personal convictions. So personal convictions, if you find that it's that's why you're objecting, I think you have the right to lay those down if push comes to shove. Um, and I also think now you've got to look at the other side, because some people are saying, no, for me, it's a religious conviction. Um, it's 1 Corinthians 6, that my body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, remember, that's about sexual immorality, so be careful you're not living with your girlfriend playing the, I have a religious conviction to the vaccine card. Like, let's have some consistency here. And 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 other ones like I I don't wanna cave into a spirit of fear and I think this thing's been fear-mongered, or others would say, Well, I've prayed about it, or God told me not to take the vaccine. I've had all of them. If you land, and I don't wanna I don't wanna form your personal convictions, but if for you you say that it's a religious conviction, then understand that's something that you have to stand by. That means you might lose your job, you might lose your medical insurance, and you might not have the ability to travel, and there might be a ton of other social restrictions that our country could put on you. But if it's a religious stand, live by your convictions. There is a day coming where we're told in Revelation 13 that you're gonna be faced as a follower of Jesus Christ to potentially do I take the mark of Antichrist or do I not? And the vaccine is not that mark. Are you sure? pretty positive I took it, okay? And here's why. It doesn't match the biblical description. The Bible says that everyone will understand, an angel will warn everyone that in taking the mark of Antichrist, you're identifying with Antichrist. You don't go, oh man, I didn't know it was that. It's a clear choice. With the vaccine, though, I will say this, you're seeing precursors that you look at and you go, man, I can see how this is conditioning the world for choices that Christians are going to have to make down the line. And I'm not going to tell my people, form a religious conviction, and then when things get really tough, punt on it. So understand, evaluate, and the question I asked last week, what's at the center of your conviction? If it's personal, I think you have the freedom to lay it down. If it's religious, I think you have to stand, but you're entrusting yourself to a creator, and then you've got to endure the consequences. That's the paradigm of how I'd approach the vaccine decision.
0: Great. I'm happy to say nothing else on that topic. I'll let let you live and die on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So I picked all the tough questions and gave them to you. Like, that's what you're claiming, eh? Okay, so here's the next one. Over the course of the pandemic, our church and elders have argued often that we are to submit to our government authorities However, our Constitution begins with the statement, we the people. Doesn't the fact that we live in a democracy make us the authority over the governing officials as they are called to represent and serve our interests? I am worried our church has misrepresented the Constitution. Have fun with that.
0: Yeah, there's a lot going on there. And um, here's what I want to say. First of all, I'm so thankful that I get to live in the time and place where we're under a democracy. I think when um, you look at systems of government throughout world history, we're in the very, very small minority that we have some influence and say over who governs us. And I think that's a protection. I think that's a great blessing from the Lord. But um, here's what I would say. I would say the way that we influence who governs us is through voting. And um, what happens is is after the votes are, are cast, after the, um, the votes are tallied and whoever wins, they become our governing authority for the term that they're elected. Um, I, I don't think... The fact that we vote means that the people that we don't vote for we get to say well i don't follow you or i don't obey you because i never voted for you and because i it's a democracy i'm the authority i i don't think that's um consistent with reality nor with what the intention was for our constitution like i don't get to say hey i didn't vote for president biden so he's not my president no he is my president until he is voted out of office or until his term is over and um Here's what I would say. Um, I just wanna remind you, submission to authority is not a small issue with God. You see it all over the place in scripture. I just think about the New Testament. We are called to live in submission to the Lord. We are called to live in submission citizens to government, wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. We're called to submit to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to submit to our elders and to our church authority, like all over the place. God sets up systems of submission. And I would just lovingly say to you, if your heart is at the place where you're always looking for why you don't have to follow the rules or why you don't have to submit or why the people in authority over you aren't worth listening to or obeying, That's probably a rebellious heart issue that you have that I would encourage you to to seek the Lord of and repent and, and, and seek help with that. But this idea that we only have to submit to the governing authorities that we liked or vote for, I think that's kind of the definition of anarchy. And if our society went that way, things would get really bad really quickly.
1: I'm going to skip the next question, uh, maybe because I don't want to answer it or maybe for sake of time, and we're going to go to Cal's next question. Here it is. It says this, what if my WWJD is different than your WWJD?
0: Um, This is a really good question. I'm really excited about this one. You guys know what WWJD means, right? It's what would Jesus do? How many of you had the bracelets growing up? Come on, right? If you're like a 90s kid in the church, you for sure had a WWJD bracelet on. And the idea is, is you got to ask yourself the question, am I living like Jesus? The reason I like this question is I think this is an incredible example of how secular humanism infiltrates the church and, and Christianity, right? Because here's what it's saying. It's saying, well, what if what you think Jesus would do is different than what I would think Jesus would do? Shouldn't we just do what we think feels right? And, and here's the problem with that. Truth is objective and Jesus is a real person. So if Brandon and I, if we come to one, a situation, you think that Jesus would do this, I think that Jesus would do this, one of us is wrong. Like, Jesus would make one decision or another. Truth is objective. And my concern is is even in the idea of WWJD, what we've done is, is, well, I'm just going to do what I think Jesus would do, and ultimately, you're still just making yourself the highest authority. It's all about what you think. So here's a really important question I wanna ask each and every one of you today. It's this. What voices in your life do you listen to that you trust more than your own? What voices in your life do you listen to that you trust more than your own? And I think for Christians, if we're going to successfully follow Jesus, there has to be um, two voices that we listen to that are higher than our own. The first is God's word, right? And this is what we've tried to make um, uh, very apparent in this series, that God's word is the ultimate authority, Martin Luther, the reformer, he's got a great quote. He says this, he says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And what he's saying is is that even if my conscience says, hey, this is right, but God's word says it isn't right, I'm going to yield what I think to what God's word says. If God's word believes something or teaches something that's different than what my heart thinks, I'm gonna yield that to God's word. So God's word is an ultimate source of truth, but, but church, listen to this. There also has to be spiritual authority in your life That you submit to? And I think if I were to ask most evangelical Christians, who do you submit to? I think most of us would say, I don't submit to anyone. I just submit to God and and, and God's word, and I submit to Christ. I don't submit to man. Well, can I ask you a question? If that's true, if God's desire was that all we needed was the Bible and prayer to, to functionally follow Jesus, why did God establish the church? Why did God establish pastors and elders and overseers and shepherds? Why does the Bible call us to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to rebuke one another, and and call one another to good deeds? Like, he's given spiritual authority in our lives for us to submit to and for us to say, hey, in a situation where I don't know what to do, I trust you so much that even if I don't agree with you, I'm going to listen to what you say. I think humility demands that we don't just live a life that says what I think is best, and I'm only going to do what I think or what I feel. So so here's what I know. There are people in my life, and some of them are the elders of our church, some are friends, some are mentors, where I will go to them and say, hey, I don't know what, I've got a situation in my life where I don't know what to do. I think I should go this way, but if you tell me that that's wrong and I need to go this way, I'm going to listen to you even though I'm not sure I agree, but I want to submit myself to people who are mature, who I love, who I trust, and, and I don't want to be a lone cowboy calling all of the shots for my life. And I think really good candidates for people that you should submit yourself to, I think small group leaders would be a really good candidate. I think pastors, I think elders, I think mentors in your life, maybe even from another church who you've known and who've known you for a long time and you trust their biblical grid. I I think it's important that we um, are quick to submit both to God's word and both to spiritual authority. And if we say we're only doing one, Um, and not the other, we're setting ourselves to be dangerous. Like the reason the Reformation happened was because the church made God's word um, not relatable to people. It was in a different language. Most people were illiterate and they were twisting God's word and teaching things that the Bible didn't say. So it can't just be spiritual authority. You've got to hold that to the word of God. But if it's just you and the Bible and you're not submitting yourself to anyone else, I think you're also setting yourself up for failure. Does that make sense? Okay, Um, we got time for um, one more, and uh, it's this. And I think it's a really good question to end on. It's this. What are you willing to stand in and not bow to? Like, what are the things you have to draw the line on? And then what concerns you for the generations to come?
1: Yeah, so the the first part of that, I want to make sure that the things that I'm willing to resist authority on, the things that I'm going to take a stand against authority on are clear convictions formed with a biblical foundation that hopefully by making that stand, um, my stance actually brings glory to God and not me. That's, that's the things that I'm looking to stand for. So when I'm put in a situation where, listen, I can, deal, I can live within a culture that says, um, you know, there's, there's umpteen numbers of genders, but then I'm gonna be asked a specific question. How many genders do you think that there are? I, I'm gonna say two sexes, two genders, and a whole lot of confusion. Like, like when I'm put on the line where I've gotta make a biblical conviction and that one's based off Genesis one, these are the places where I wanna be able to make a stand and then suffer the consequences for, those sta- for that stand. The question with future generations and concern, I, again, I don't, I don't wanna be given to a spirit of fear, but if you ask me what my concern is, here's, here's my concern for the next generation. Our, our society has so um, strongly embraced the idea of tolerance Everyone should be allowed to believe whatever they want to believe. That the idea of subjective uh, truth has just disappeared. And, and, and listen, if the culture takes on a secular worldview, that's a problem. It's a way bigger problem when the churches do. And what we're seeing within denominations, just, just even referencing specifically what the RCA did. They, they came out, they had a big debate. What are we going to do with same-sex relationships? Are we going to do the marriages and all of this? And they said, we're going to let every church decide. Okay, that's like the worst news for me because then you've got some churches believing one thing, some churches believing others, and the issue is not between a biblical worldview and what the church stands by. The churches can't even agree, and that becomes problematic, and what I'm seeing is 10, 11 years ago when we planted this church, I was like the oldest church planter in the room. I was in my late 40s. I was hang- you know, most of the guys who were planting were late 20s, early 30s. There were a lot of influential pastors 10, 11 years ago that were in their late 20s, early 30s, who's an influential pastor in their late 20s, early 30s? Now, where have they gone? And a lot of these guys that 10 years ago were those influential pastors, they're out of ministry. They've either blown out of ministry or they've said, I'm gonna go do something else. I'm gonna go be a blogger. I'm just gonna do podcasts because ministry is getting really, really difficult and it's getting difficult not because of what's going on in culture. It's getting difficult because what's going on in the church at large And my concern for the generations is where are the young men going to be who are going to stand up, the families, and say, thus says the Lord. And you know what? The Bible is an authority, and this is what I'm going to stand on. And I just think that's going to become more and more difficult as the church has become more and more compromised by secular humanism.
0: Yeah, and so I want to end by doing a little bit different tangent. Um, I'm hopeful. And I don't wanna end this Q&A being like, oh man, doom and gloom. Like, listen, um, here's what I know. In the last 2000 years, there have been a lot of cultural moments. There's been a lot of nations. There's been a lot of world powers that have come and gone. Um, There's been one name that has been above every name for that entire time, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. God is sovereign over this moment. He's sovereign over our country. God is not in heaven nervous about the cultural climate in America. He is King of Kings, he is Lord of Lords, and he um, is the author of revivals. And I think there's a very, very um, opportune time in our nation to see revival happen. And I think that is going to happen. And so I don't look at our culture being like, man, I can't, just can't wait to get to heaven. I, I, I'm hopeful. I think God is moving. I think he's going to continue to move. And I think we as Christians live with confidence that we are serving the name above every other name. Amen. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, this morning. I just thank you for the opportunity that your word provides just to be very, very practical. And I just pray for families as we head to Thanksgiving and spending time with people we don't often see. Would you keep us safe? Would you keep us healthy? Um, Would you keep us free from division? And God, I just pray that your spirit would be with us, that we would trust you, that we would live boldly for you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.